Submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 111 original, the State of Delaware versus the State of New York. Mr. Lyons. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case started as a sort of a collection case brought in this Court by uh, Delaware against New York to uh, enforce Delaware's rights under the clear teachings of the backup rule uh, promulgated by this Court in the Texas case in the mid-1960s and reaffirmed by this Court in the Pennsylvania case in the early 1970s, uh, the property in question was so-called overages. These occur when an issuer of securities pays a dividend to its holders of record, and you have a broker or some other party that holds for customers or clients uh, as a holder of record, and what the issuer pays is more than what the broker owes to its customers. Uh, it also occurs when the brokers are paid by the depository trust company, which we will call the DTC, which is a nominee uh, custodian set up by a cadre of brokers and custodian banks. Uh, the property is owed here to unknowns. That is the agreed position of 49 of the states, except for New York, uh, which says that it may be owed to knowns, but it can't identify who they are at this point. Why does this occur so often and generate so much revenue? Uh, it occurs, I believe, because of the activities in the securities markets, that you have an issuer who is maintaining a record. Uh, you have uh, securities which are traded, and they sometimes get traded in semi-bearer form. In other words, a stock certificate comes out, uh, it is endorsed in negotiable in blank form, uh, and it is passed from hand to hand, and uh, the issuer, of course, doesn't know about this. It pays the record, uh, and that results in someone being overpaid and someone being underpaid. Uh, and I think it has to do with the volume of trading uh, and the uh, fact that we have a stock certificate-based trading system in most, uh, in most areas. Uh, this does not involve the primary rule. Uh, the case is narrowly drawn simply to involve the backup rule. The primary rule, of course, involves lost stockholders, people who are on the record but who the issuer can't find, who the issuer has addresses for but has lost touch with, and uh, lost uh, customers of brokers. And uh, we estimate in our brief, there is no evidence in the record, that the universe of the primary rule here, the escheats, is much larger <coughs> than that of the backup rule. What started as a collection case turned into a stampede. 
one by one, 48 states intervened, and uh, they came up with a position that was different from the positions that were quite common between the plaintiff and the defendant in this case. Uh, the effect of these positions was to enlarge the size of the universe. <clears throat> that was an issue in the case. The property that Delaware sought was the property in the hands of the brokers who were incorporated in Delaware. Uh, the property that the interveners sought for themselves was the property in the hands of the DTC, a very considerable amount of property, the property in the hands of the Delaware brokers, the property in the hands of the brokers incorporated elsewhere, and the property in the hands of the New York custodian banks, which make a specialty uh, of holding securities for customers. Mr. Lyons, if, if we were to apply the rule and the backup rule and the doctrines enunciated by this court in prior cases, does that mean Delaware would prevail here? Delaware would prevail. It, it's the state of incorporation yes. of the uh, holder yes. of the dividend. Yes, it would. And New York would prevail as treating the, treating the holder as the creditor. As the debtor. Debtor. As the debtor. Yes, Your Honor. That is our position. That the uh, debtor here is the is the broker is the DTC, but in particular, since the DT doesn't concern us, New York gets that under our theory, uh, that the broker is the debtor. Well, now the special master didn't take that view <coughs> and didn't treat the broker as the debtor. He came close to acknowledging, if Your Honor please, that the broker was a debtor under state law. And uh, he said the state law was technical, and that what we needed here was a federal common law. And under federal common law, even though it wasn't the case under uh, state law, and I think that's quite clear, there's a, a litany of reasons why it's clear, uh, we will treat the issuer uh, as being the debtor. Uh, he had a little process whereby he teased out ambiguities, and after he finished teasing the ambiguities, he had created an ambiguity, and he resolved it with a tiebreaker. Uh, in a sports analogy, and the, uh, the tiebreaker was fairness. And the principle of fairness was to send the money back where it came from. And the money, he said, came from the issuer. Beg pardon? Like in the Western Union case. No, the, uh, uh, that was the decision of Congress in a very narrowly drafted statute. It was not the decision of this court. This court, in a very conservative decision by Justice Brennan, uh, literally applied the teachings of the uh, Texas case to that uh, matter. And uh, well, what was Western Union to do uh, when it couldn't find uh, uh, the uh, payee, the, the money, to the person to whom the money was sent? Western Union couldn't find either the payee well, or the sender. What, what if they couldn't find the, pay, the payee? Well, the, then what did they do? The sender was still, the, was still a creditor in that case. And if they had an address for the, uh, for the creditor, they were to escheat it to the, to the sender as the creditor. Well, I'm, I'm not sure you could call the sender necessarily a creditor. Uh, well, he's given the money to, uh, to the Western like his Union. Son, like his son or something like that, and they couldn't find the son. Well, he's given the money to the Western Union. If the Western Union can't find his son, 
then on principles of equity, it is clear under state law that Western Union can't keep the money, that they have well, to give it back certainly to the they, Certainly these broker intermediaries uh, didn't have any uh, real claim to the funds themselves. Oh, they, they do in this sense. Uh, they are, uh, do not owe it back to the issuers. It is quite clear that well, they, they don't. They, if they can find the issuer, the well, has it may be, but but if they could find uh, if they could find uh, the uh, the ultimate beneficiary, they were supposed to send it. They're on. supposed to give it to the beneficiary. So they didn't really have any. In the in the meantime, they're earning the interest on it. They're using maybe, the money in maybe. their business. Uh, most uh, that is, of course, a chronic position of a of a debtor in an estate case. Now, in all these cases, by definition, the debtor in an escheat case uh, owes the money to somebody else. But uh, if that person cannot be found within the period of latency, uh, then you have an escheat. So I think simply to say that the debtor uh, owes the money to someone else uh, doesn't resolve the, uh, the question. It's the start of the question. Thank you, Mr. Lines. We'll resume there at, at 1 o'clock. You may resume, Mr. Lyons. Thank you, Your Honor. Before the uh, break, I was making the point that state law should govern who the debtor is for the purpose of characterization of the backup rule. Uh, under the state law, very clearly, the brokers are not the issuer's agent, and the issuer is no longer a debtor. The issuer has paid the holders of record and accordingly has no further obligation. It is only the brokers and the other intermediaries who have an obligation. They are a debtor. To be sure, they owe the money to somebody else and they don't know who they owe it to, to uh, but uh, the issuer is not a debtor, nor is the issuer their creditor. Uh, the, as I was saying, the only basis for applying federal common law uh, here is to create a rule that comes out differently from the rule as it would come out under the laws of all 50 of the states. What we have, I think, is a change for the sake of change and a change for a purpose that was rejected in the uh, Texas case itself where it was contended that the mineral rights proceeds should go back in its cheat to the state of Texas because it was from Texas soil that they had sprung. Uh, and the court uh, rejected that theory and said that the uh, those properties, like the rest, would be distributed under the primary rule if there was a known creditor with a last known address uh, and otherwise under the backup rule. The master, besides making what I think is a change in the uh, rule that the debtor should be the debtor, which he did not acknowledge as a change, made an acknowledged change by changing the uh, state of reference for the debtor from being the state of incorporation of the debtor to the state of principal executive office. Mr. Lyons, before, I'm sorry if I may interrupt you, before you go on to that, I just wanted to ask you one question that relates to your first point. Um, the, uh, the brief points out that some uh, 44 states have joined into a property, an unclaimed property clearinghouse mm -hmm. scheme. Uh, is there any reason to believe that that scheme could not be Converted readily to uh, uh, to the uh, to the court's new rule of looking to the uh, uh, 
uh, looking to the state of the issuer rather than the uh, than to the state of the uh, holder if if in fact we followed the master uh, the securities industry's brief I think suggests numerous difficulties with that because of the the way it focuses on the the operations of the of the brokers and they they make numerous do you adopt that position uh, yes we we do adopt we're in, we're in sympathy with their uh, with their position uh, it's interesting to note that the rules set down in the uh, in the agreement for that uh, clearinghouse quite clearly identify the holder as the debtor and the state of incorporation of the holder as the uh, uh, as the state of reference mm -hmm. uh, 44 states uh, signed that <coughs> the uh, Master made this change of his own accord. The states that were contending for the issuer as debtor uh, at that time were contending for the state of incorporation as the reference uh, for the uh, state for the issuer or for whoever was the uh, debtor. This was a spontaneous change. There was no discovery on the merits of making the change. There was no discovery as to really what a principal executive office was and what reference it had to the productive facilities of a uh, corporation. And uh, it appears from uh, business publications and surveys that we have quoted in our brief, uh, not having had a chance for discovery, that uh, there is very little connection between the uh, principal executive office, which is the master's uh, rule, and the productive activities of a corporation. It's just the place where the executive officers, the top uh, brass, uh, have their uh, headquarters. It seems to me that if the court does not adopt the issuer as debtor uh, rule, that the uh, change falls of its own weight because the master placed great weight on the fact that the 10-Q report and the 10-K report that issuers uh, of securities file contain this information, and you have grievous difficulties applying the change rule if once you get beyond the uh, the realm of the uh, of the issuer, but in any event, the basis that the master gave for making the change from the state of incorporation uh, was that it was fairer because it spread the money around more thoroughly. In other words, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, Delaware had too many incorporations. Uh, let me say that no corporation is required to incorporate in Delaware. Delaware's statute is not copyrighted. Uh, it can be copied by another state, and some of them have. Uh, what uh, brings corporations to Delaware are, is a perception that its judiciary and that its legislature function in the best interests of stockholders and in the best interests of corporate management at the same time, that they have a balanced approach. The uh, rule of the state of incorporation uh, is a rule which creates and equality of opportunity. In other words, it is not the money goes to Delaware, the money goes to whatever state the debtor was incorporated in if the backup rule uh, is uh, applicable. And every state has an equal opportunity to do that. And if they could uh, equal uh, Delaware's record and the record of its uh, court of chancery over the 200 years that it has been in existence, uh, I think that uh, uh, it would be a healthy uh, thing. Uh, there is clearly no administrative ease in the change. Uh, the administration, even in the context of issuer as debtor, is probably more difficult. And once you get beyond the area of issuer as debtor, uh, where you uh, do not have a, uh, a 10K and a 10Q to serve as 
you were a pole star, uh, then you have a rule which is difficult of administration. And I don't see any limiting principle in the master's report that limits the change in the rule to this uh, situation. What we have then is change for change's sake, I believe. Uh, I uh, will save the rest of my time for rebuttal, if I may, Your Honor. Very well, Mr. Lyons. Uh, Mr. Boone, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May I please the court? I would like to start by stating New York's concurrence in Delaware's analysis with respect to the backup rule and express our disagreement with Delaware with respect to the application of the primary rule. The master's report is propelled by the notion that it would be fair to distribute the unclaimed distributions in question widely among the states rather than to New York or New York and Delaware as a straightforward application of the Texas rules command. Why is that fair? I don't understand why it's fair to distribute it more widely. Well, the master's notion was that since these are basically uh, funds that are stuck among intermediaries who have no uh, beneficial interest in those funds, it would be more equitable to return those funds to uh, the states of the issuers uh, and benefit their citizens because uh, they generated, if you will, through their investment, the, uh, the underlying security. Well, maybe we could give it to the federal government. Uh, then it would, you know, we could distribute it the way all the people want it to be distributed. Well, Your Honor, that, uh, that may be, uh, <laughs> that would be another approach. That's but another approach, I agree. What, what we're asking for is that it be distributed pursuant to the straightforward rules as they currently uh, demand. Yeah, why isn't it fair to just follow the court's precedence here? Why do we have to go around writing new rules? I believe it is fair, Your Honor. That's New York's position that the court has told New York and all states 27 years ago in Texas v. New Jersey uh, that it was setting down very clear rules for establishing state uh, rights and determining what those as cheap rights are in intangible obligations. And the court reaffirmed that uh, in Pennsylvania v. New York and refused to modify even slightly uh, the rule based on the same fairness notions or factors that uh, motivated the master here. Well, I suppose Congress can certainly step in and change the formula, and maybe if uh, 48 states are out there asking them to do it, uh, it wouldn't be too tough, would it? That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, and uh, I would suggest, New York would suggest, if there's something particularly unfair in this particular context about distributing or is cheating these funds pursuant to the existing black letter as cheat rules as set down by this court, uh, we would suggest that institutionally it would be better if it were left to Congress to, to make those changes as it did with respect to the Western Union uh, money orders. But if this case were to be decided on fairness grounds, uh, I would point out that beneficial, excuse me, uh, brokers and other financial institution intermediaries do have beneficial rights uh, in these funds, as I will elaborate. Uh, because our argument proceeds, our primary rule argument, which, which I'd like to now focus on, uh, proceeds from the traditional understanding of the primary rule. That is, uh, you identify uh, the right to its cheat belongs to the state of the creditor as identified uh, on the broker's books, applying the last known address principle. 
applying, uh, well, we submit that it is possible to identify uh, with respect to brokers. I should, uh, should clarify with respect to, again, concurrent in Delaware's analysis with respect to DTC, Depository Trust Corporation, a New York incorporated entity, and custodial banks, uh, New York custodial banks. There's no dispute uh, by Delaware nor any other party in this litigation uh, that those funds would have cheat to New York under the traditional understanding of the backup rule, uh, New York being the state of incorporation uh, for those, those entities. So there is no dispute, and we would urge the court in that regard to follow the traditional backup rule. Between you and, and Delaware or not? On the backup rule, there is no dispute. There is a dispute on the primary rule mm -hmm. with respect to whether it can be applied to, to brokers. Mm -hmm. And I, I will turn to that. Um, the master concluded that it was not possible to apply the primary rule to uh, two brokers, uh, and we disagree with that conclusion. Uh, and we believe that the record will reflect that there is a genuine issue of material fact presented by New York's theory that would warrant a remand uh, to allow New York to pursue additional or discovery to uh, prove certain facts. We're on a very limited record here where the master directed that uh, discovery would uh, be limited to exploring the general architecture and structure of the financial institutions uh, or financial services industry. Uh, so we were not allowed to pursue a more detailed discovery did as the master, Did the master determine that the, the money we're talking about, as to that money, the creditors are not known? We, we don't know the identity of them. That's correct. Uh, and, and what you're arguing is for the application of some sort of presumption to determine who uh, the creditors are, is that it? No, Your Honor. No. Um, there, there are three elements to our factual contention that the, uh, the brokers can be identified, the creditor brokers. Um, and the first contention or the first element is that brokers nominee float results from the exchange of physical certificates between brokers and banks and the failure of the recipient broker or bank to re-register that certificate into its own name or nominee name before the record date. Therefore, the selling broker remains the registered owner and is paid the distribution to which it is no longer entitled. So uh, a situation arises that you can identify from the selling broker's books, who would be the debtor, uh, who the purchasing broker is, which would be the creditor under our analysis. We're not asking for a presumption. What we're asking for, uh, at the outset of this litigation, we introduced an affidavit uh, of our director of audits for unclaimed funds, which has not been refuted in this record. And what that uh, affidavit established that was that it was possible to trace a particular transaction that gave rise to abandoned property holding, holdings with a creditor broker. Those particular transactions could be traced from a data broker's book books or end records to uh, identify a creditor broker. Now there are hundreds of thousands of transactions that occur, so it would be impractical to trace each and every one of those. So what we've asked the court to do is to approve our use of a sampling uh, approach, which uh, the court has approved in other contexts, most notably to prove racial discrimination in employment discrimination suits and jury selection cases.
Uh, so we're asking the court to approve that, and we would then uh, trace, uh, pursuant to that sample, a certain number of transactions, and then would extrapolate from that uh, to the universe of such transactions. Well, in prove what? Prove that the addresses on the data broker's books would identify a creditor broker with a trading address in New York in almost every instance. So we're not won't, at, won't that simply get you in most instances uh, to yet another holder? That isn't going to get you to an issuer, is it? I'm sorry. If I didn't you hear. follow your process and you get to the the, the the now hidden set of books, they're going to or, or you follow the, the, the books and you get yourself to a hidden entity, that entity is simply going to be another holder, isn't it? It's not going to be uh, the, the issuer in many cases. It's going to get well, another Another person like the broker in Delaware? No, Your Honor. Uh, under the traditional understanding of the primary rule, the creditor is defined as the apparent owner on a debtor broker's or a debtor's books, whether that debtor is a record holder or an individual, partnership, whatever. Uh, so what would be identified from the debtor broker's books who consummated that trade to his contraparty, another broker, uh, that will be reflected on the data broker's books, and that is the... But I won't tell you whether the creditor broker that you say can be identified is holding, is, uh, would, would, would have been trading on its own account or for somebody else. Right. Not necessarily, but the primary rule, uh, as it currently stands, does not require the exploration of, of ownership. Uh, it only requires that you identify the last known address of the apparent owner as identified on that debtor's books and records. I mean, you, don't, you don't have to get to the beneficial owner under the prim primary role, even as, we have, as we've applied it. That's correct. You just get to the record owner. Even if you know who it is? Well, first of all, I should point out that the, the creditor broker identified on the debtor broker's books is the apparent owner, may be the beneficial owner. We don't know. The, uh, the primary rule was not designed to, to, to probe the nature of the ownership. Well, we don't know uh, whether we follow your theory or whether we follow the theory that, um, that Delaware wants. But the fact is we have no more reason to believe that, that following your theory is going to result in a more ultimate equity uh, than if we simply stop uh, where, where Delaware would have us stop. Well, if it, uh, the express purpose of the court's primary rule, as we understand it, at least heretofore, uh, is that it be effectuated where it can. And uh, we're asking for an opportunity to do that, and we believe that we have raised a, an, an issue of material fact on this record that would warrant uh, additional discovery uh, in that regard. And what was the master's position on, on this argument? Well, the master concluded that the creditor is the beneficial owner. Uh, which is at variance with the traditional uh, understanding that the creditor is the apparent owner, the obligee, the party entitled to enforce payment of the debt. So uh, having concluded that, the master basically said our factual arguments were beside the point. Uh, and again, we're on a limited record. Uh, we specifically, uh, the parameters of, of the limited discovery did not allow uh, probing of our factual uh, theories. And they, Contentions, and they're also based on uh, this court. Did you claim to the master that if you were allowed this discovery, 
uh, you had any hope of proving that you would be closer to the real beneficial owner uh, if, if you were allowed uh, to follow your statistical analysis for the purposes of the primary rule? Uh, the beneficial owner uh, has been paid. It's the, it's the practice of the industry, as all of the various financial uh, institutions, the brokers, the banks, and DTC testified in their testimony that they pay their customer, who is generally regarded as the beneficial owner, although that customer may be acting for someone else, which is one of the problems with trying to parse the notion of beneficial ownership. But the testimony was that the financial institutions would pay, do pay their customers on the pay date, regardless of whether the financial institution itself has received all of the distribution to which it is entitled uh, from the issuer's paying agent. So the record will show that the customer, the beneficial owner, is paid. What we're talking about are funds that are owed, uh, that are lost intra-brokers, essentially. That's, that's our, our, our position. And uh, again, under the primary rule, the, uh, the creditor is the apparent owner. I mean, there was no exploration of uh, attributes of ownership as it has traditionally been interpreted by uh, the various states in their uniform, in their abandoned property acts and by the uniform abandoned property acts, and as understood by the financial uh, services industry as reflected. Saying the master just misunderstood the, this system uh, that, that goes on, because he said, and I thought he said, that uh, neither these, he, he treated the Delaware and New York entities as intermediaries who had no uh, no beneficial interest in these funds, and you say he's just wrong about that. Yes, I, that's correct. I say the the testimony uh, in the record will reflect that financial institution intermediaries, if you will, the brokers specifically that we're referring to here, are routinely paid our customers. And I thought, I thought he also uh, offered you the opportunity. I'm wrong about this. Uh, offered you the opportunity to put in whatever evidence you could about, about who indeed the real owners are. You, you were allowed to put in whatever you had. Is that wrong? We were allowed within the general parameters. I mean, our theory, in, in order to, to prove it, uh, we submit, we concede, has, we have to trace, we have to have an opportunity to trace the actual transactions. We put in an affidavit at the very outset of this litigation that demonstrated that that could be done. It was based on the uh, sampling of data brokers in New York, and it indicated that you could trace a particular transaction from a data broker and establish the credit of broker, which would be in New York, would have a trading address in New York in virtually all instances. That has not been refuted on this record. There have been some hypothecation about uh, why that, uh, that application or that approach would fail. Well, it, what was lacking? Was it, was it inter-party discovery? I mean, what, what was the master supposed to do if you didn't have this evidence? He said, if you have it, you can put it in. What, well, what, what, what the master told us we could do is that we could trace, uh, we could do this, but it has to be done on an individual case-by-case -case basis, and you have to be able to establish uh, who the beneficial owner is. 
when a, when a broker is acting as a debtor. Well, no, I thought he, 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 I thought he found you, you didn't even prove that in, in the overwhelming number of cases this is going to be the situation. Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure he didn't even buy the fact that you had proved the generality to be true. Now, well, whose fault is that? No, what, the brokers testified that they don't make the effort to determine, uh, to do the tracing or to discover who the, uh, the creditor is. The data broker who receives the overpayment makes no effort unless it is claimed against uh, to demonstrate who that, uh, that creditor is. So, so they, they make no efforts. That's established in the record. What we're saying is that it can be done if we are permitted uh, to make the effort. Well, it seems to me there, there are two problems here. One, one is, which you object to, and I understand that, that's your objection in principle, that you should not have to do it in each case, right. one by one, that you should be able to generalize and, and apply some statistical generalization. That's one problem, and, and I give you that. But the other one is, as, as I understand the, the master, he didn't believe that your generalization was true. He didn't believe that you had brought in enough demonstration, enough factual demonstration that this statistical that this statistical uh, uh, analysis was correct, that he was willing to buy it. Well, and that's a problem of proof that is your problem, not 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 his. Justice Scalia, uh, the master disagreed with our initial predicate premise that nominee float is the primary cause of the overage that results in us cheat to New York or another state under the application of the primary rule. There is testimony in the record from brokers that uh, nominee flow is the principal cause. And there's testimony to the contrary. There is. But and he just wasn't persuaded. Well, I think what is what certainly goes to our raising a material issue of fact is that the DTC experience, where they have experimented, and this is in the record, uh, with a certificate less security for the last three years or for a three-year period, there was no unresolved overage, which really bolsters uh, and, and confirms the testimony that nominee float, these physical certificates floating around that are not re-registered uh, before the record date to the new owner is the principal cause of the overage. Well, that, this is basically a, a, a factual argument you're making, then, Mr. Booth. Uh, no, not a legal argument. Well, our, our argument proceeds from the premise that the, under the primary rule, that the creditor is the apparent owner, which the master disagreed with. So it, it, it is a mixed law-fact argument. Uh, yes, I mean, there, there are the factual contentions that I've elaborated that uh, we would have to uh, prove. And we believe the evidence, the testimony, and the record raises that issue of fact that well, entitles he, us. He, he couldn't possibly have thought that <coughs> you had made out a credible uh, case for your New York broker creditors, as you would have them, uh, really uh, had a beneficial interest in, uh, in these proceeds that you're claiming. Because what he ended up saying was that your position was wholly irrelevant to uh, uh, in terms of his disposition of the case, which he couldn't have said if he thought that you had made out a case for beneficial ownership of any of these proceeds. Well, again, we're talking about uh, the basic problem gets back to uh, the contradiction of the master's finding that uh, 
the, the overage that we're speaking of is caused, well, that brokers, brokers routinely pay their customers. Yeah. The master uh, did not uh, That's right. find, make that finding. That's right. We submit that the record will, will refute that. Which, which means that your, your, your brokers in New York really should be recognized as the beneficial owners because they had already paid their, their customers. That's, they, they are beneficial owners in the sense that uh, the funds are owed to the brokers. Uh, and, that, and, that, and that you would not owe, and, and those funds that are owed to you, you would not owe to somebody else because you had already paid them. That's, that's correct. Yeah. And, Your Honor, I, w I would ask that uh, with respect to retroactivity, that because this court is engaging in original jurisdiction rulemaking, there is no need for retroactivity. The Thank laws you. have been changed. Thank you, Mr. Boone. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Nash. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, I speak today on behalf of 44 states in support of the recommendations made by the special master. A threshold issue before the court is which state should as cheat unclaimed securities distributions that become stuck in the hands of financial intermediaries in the course of transmission from issuers to beneficial owners. The special master recommended that the state of the issuer has a superior equitable claim over the state of whatever intermediary happens to be holding the distribution when it becomes stuck. The existence of intermediaries, he held, does not change the fundamental economic relationship between the issuer and its investor. The intermediary never had and does not now have any ownership interest in the distribution. If it did, it would not be unclaimed property. The special master's conclusion was fully consistent with the precedents of this court in Texas versus New Jersey and Pennsylvania versus New York. We agree that those precedents should be followed. In Texas versus New Jersey, the ruling of this court accorded its cheat priority to the state of the issuer, not to the state of any intermediary, the issuer being Sun Oil. There were intermediaries, transfer agents and paying agents, in that case. Delaware and New York segment into a number of separate transactions the payment of dividends and interest by an issuer to its stockholders as those distributions are transmitted through brokerage firms and other intermediaries. The master correctly rejected their segmentation and state law-based theories. He explicitly utilized this court's guiding principles of fairness and ease of administration in his recommendation. In Texas versus New Jersey, this court held fairness to be one of two criteria, and this court defined fairness to accord its cheat priority to the state that gave the benefits of its economy and laws to the company whose business activities made the intangible property come into Existence. Well, I thought our precedents would look to the state of incorporation, if it's a corporation that you're 
looking to at all. With respect, isn't that, that so? That is correct, Justice. O'Connor. And the master recommends not not adhering to that precedent. That is correct, Justice O'Connor. With respect to his second recommendation of whether you change the locational test mm-hmm. from state of incorporation to principal executive office, mm-hmm. his re- first recommendation that as between the state of the issuer or the state of the conduit intermediary brokerage firm is in full accord with both Texas versus New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Well, as to that, would you concede that under most state law, uh, the broker intermediaries might be considered uh, the debtors? I would concede that the broker intermediaries would be considered one of several debtors for a single transaction, exactly as the master held. He uh, explained in his recommendation that in this type of a transaction, there are multiple intermediaries, that the issuer is a debtor for certain aspects of state law, the intermediaries are debtors for certain aspects of state law. The Uniform Commercial Code merely accords the issuer an affirmative defense. The only statute before the court in 1965 in Texas versus New Jersey was the Pennsylvania escheat statute. That Pennsylvania escheat statute, which is attached to the the master's report in the original 1965 case, defined holder as someone indebted to another, which therefore meant Sun Oil. It also defined holder as someone in possession of the property, which meant the transfer agents and paying agents. The only explicit discussion of state law in Texas versus New Jersey resulted in the court expressly rejecting state law-based rules relating to technical concepts of domicile, choice of law, and Texas's claim that state law, which defined mineral interests and royalties as real property, should control. In Standard Oil versus New Jersey in 1951, the court explicitly rejected the Uniform Stock Transfer Act as a basis for defining the federal law of his cheat. The Delaware, New York state law-based approach is inconsistent with this court's general policy of not deciding original jurisdiction cases based on state law. Debtor was used as shorthand, both in Texas versus... You're you're suggesting that we should decide uh, in all of these cases um, as a matter of federal law who owes what to whom? That is not the issue faced by the court. The court is. But why not? I mean, if 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 you feel free to ignore state law as as to who who owes what to whom in in one respect, uh, why not in all respects? The purposes of state debt credit to law were for purposes entirely unrelated to the principles underlying as cheat priority between the states. The court in Texas versus New Jersey specified the dual criteria which would be used to determine as cheat priority. It identified as criteria number one, fairness, and criteria number two, ease of administration. You think it had no reference to, to what, the, what the state, who the state thought the debtor and creditor were? That's sort of just irrelevant? 
All we have to consider is fairness and ease of administration. That is correct. The term debtor was used descriptively as a shorthand, as a referent to the, to the identify the company whose domiciliary state had superior equitable interest. Question I asked earlier, if you want to talk about fairness and ease of administration, why not just make it all payable to the United States? Because that would not be fair. Under the it wouldn't criteria. be fair because of what? Because of state law. No, it would not. Because some other people have some rights to this money. It would not be fair because this court's equitable criteria indicates that if the person entitled to the funds cannot be found, then the contraparty ought to be the entity that created the wealth and the property that has been abandoned. And if you cannot return it to the true, to the state of the true owner, which has the asset, if you will, then instead of it being in limbo or going to the United States of America, it ought to go back to the state where the activities took place that created the wealth which is now uh, lost. Do, do we always look to the true owner? This gets back to a point that was uh, discussed earlier. Uh, how, how do we apply the owner? The owner, is the owner considered always to be only the beneficial owner? We always look through the equitable owner to the beneficial owner? Is that the rule that's applied? That is correct. That would be the primary rule. And the question is under the secondary rule, that is the question presented in this case, when the beneficial owner cannot be identified for his chief purposes, which state has the equitably superior claim for that property? You, you mean, well, okay. Mr. Oh. Mr. Nash, uh, <laughs> well, what if a claim arises, say, in uh, Mr. Boone's state of New York, between a property owner and the state of New York? as to whether uh, uh, property in that state should as cheat to the state of New York. Now, is the state of New York bound in adjudicating that dispute by our decision in, in this case and in our earlier cases? No, that would be a question of state law. What, your, what Texas versus New Jersey and Pennsylvania versus New York deal with is contests and disputes between the states. So that the rules we lay down in these cases, and I do mean lay down since they seem to be made up, uh, are just bind uh, uh, litigants is state against state, so to speak. That is correct, but New York statute would, would not be constitutional if it would then seek to take property from, from its citizens inconsistent with the rules of this court. Well, then, then you're saying that our decisions do bind uh, not just states versus state, but a, a New York private litigant against the state of New York. It does, Mr. Chief Justice, with respect to whether New York has the power to take from that uh, citizen. Getting back to the question asked a moment ago with respect to looking to federal common law versus state law, this call court has held in several cases that in contest between states, the court looks to federal common law and does not borrow from state law. If we were to follow the Delaware-New York approach and allow its chief priority to be accorded the locational state, be it state of incorporation or state of principal executive office, of the financial intermediary, that would result in a grossly inequitable movement of funds to but one or two states. For example, under Delaware's theory, owner unknown unclaimed, unclaimed interest paid by taxpayers of California and California municipalities, for example, or any other state, paid on municipal bonds would be as cheated 
not by the state of the taxpayer, but by another state depending solely upon the fortuity of where California's distribution got stuck. If it happened to get stuck at DTC, New York would have cheated because DTC is incorporated in New York. If it happened to get stuck at Merrill Lynch, Delaware would have cheated because it happened, Merrill Lynch happens to be incorporated in Delaware. But of course the same thing would happen if we were not talking about an intangible here, but we were talking about personal property that was owned by, owed from one person to another and it was handed over transferred from one state to another physically. Whatever state it happened to be in when the, when the music ended uh, would, would be the state that would have authority to a sheet, wouldn't it? And you'd say, gee, that's purely arbitrary. Physical property has always been as cheated uh, where, where found. Uh, exactly, exactly, exactly. Aren't all our, aren't the rules, of, don't the rules of his cheat begin with, begin with an assumption of state power over the property? And state power over the property depends in, in turn upon state law with, with regard to such matters as indebtedness. State power over physical property depends upon the location of the physical property. State power over intangible property depends upon the location of the intangible property. And this court has, court has held in innumerable cases that the intangible property has touched a large number of states so that any number of states would have the power to cheat intangible property. And that has led to the Texas... Could, could it be any number, literally? We, we could just lay, set forth a federal rule that allows any state whatever, since this is intangible property? No, but many states touch upon the intangible property. If you have distributions of a company incorporated or principal executive office in one state, uh, uh, and the investor is in another state, and the contract is entered into in a third state. All I am saying is not that any state in the world can be fabricated, but Sounds many good. states have mm -hmm. citizens who touch the intangible property mm -hmm. before the transaction is completed, and each would have the power to cheat. And the question before the court is, which case state should have the equitable superiority. That sounds very much like the like the uh, the contact theory that was explicitly rejected in Texas versus New Jersey, the kind of theory that is used in conflict of laws, and we explicitly said that's a bad rule. Uh, I respectfully disagree. Texas versus New Jersey rejected the situs as a location. If anything, it is the Delaware rule that the situs of the property, meaning the situs of the holder, should achieve. That is what was rejected in Texas versus uh, New Jersey. Texas versus New Jersey resolved that the state of the issuer, because Sun Oil was the issuer, had the authority, the, the equitable superiority uh, of the right. Well, it did also reject the contacts rule because there would be several states with contacts. It said that cannot be the sole rule. That's what Justice Black said. That is correct, Justice yeah. Stevens. The federal money order statute, which was adopted by the Congress to govern as cheat priority among the states, not state laws developed for unrelated purposes, provides, in our opinion, far better guidance than state debtor credit to law. In that statute, Congress gave as cheat priority to the state in which the property originated. The state of the intermediary, Western Union, was accorded last place in the quest to his cheat. Another relevant federal policy may be found in the SEC proxy rules. 
which permit issuers to bypass intermediaries and transmit proxy materials and corporate communications directly to beneficial owners. Mr. Nash, can I ask you a question? I probably, it's probably in the papers, but it just slips my mind. Do all states have the same latency periods? They do not. They range from uh, uh, three to seven. There might be one or two that's longer than seven. Thank you. The master's recommendation that the locational test be changed to state of principal's executive office does depart from precedent, unlike his first recommendation that precedent controls and that the state of the issuer rather than the state of the intermediary has its chief priority. He's urged that, did they? They did not. But, you, but the 44 states now agree that, that he resolved that issue uh, satisfactorily? That is correct, and four additional states have not filed exceptions to that aspect of the recommendation. Delaware and New York contend that stare decisis precludes this modification. Viewing stare decisis, of course, is a mechanical formula. They rely, however, principally, if not exclusively, on de stare decisis decisions involving statutory interpretation. This court, however, has recognized that there is an essential difference between statutory interpretation on the one hand and case law and constitutional interpretation on the other. It is axiomatic that when the reason for a common law rule no longer exists, the common law adapts. In this case, the passage of time has eroded the rationale underlying the state of incorporation locational test. In 1965, the court adopted state of incorporation as a locational test solely because of the administrative infeasibility then of implementing a main office or principal office test. The court expressly stated that state of incorporation was a minor factor and rejected it as the primary rule. The court recognized that it would have been far more equitable to reward the state in which the issuer maintains its principal place of business because the court stated that is the state that probably is foremost in giving the benefits of its economy and laws to the company whose business activities made the intangible property come into existence. The principal executive office test of recommended by the master also would satisfy another aspect of the Texas versus New Jersey fairness criteria as articulated by the court, namely distributing its cheats among the states in the proportion of the commercial activities of their residents. Computer databases today, widely used throughout the securities industry, make it feasible, unlike 27 years ago, to adopt a principal executive office locational test. Those databases permit ready access to principal executive office information. Why principal executive office? In Texas versus New Jersey, we, we really didn't talk about, we said, we didn't, didn't talk about principal executive office. We said, uh, 
in some respects, the claim of Pennsylvania where Sun's principal offices are located is, is more persuasive. Uh, it isn't clear to me they were just talking about principal executive offices. They're talking about their main place of business. You are correct, Justice Scalia. The court was talking about, they use, the court used the term main office and principal uh, place of business interchangeably. And they were trying to get to a location where the activities took place. The masters, and, and the court rejected that, rightly so, and we do not propose that today, because that is, by its very nature, subjective, and would lead the court into a quagmire of litigation and dispute. Principal executive office, however, is a close proxy to the goal of the court. It is objective. There is only one. It is readily identifiable. Every public company must file one or another type of report with the Securities and Exchange Commission, at least annually, if not more frequently, the cover page of which must identify and specify not only the state of incorporation, but the state of that company's principal executive office. The master found that the principal executive office is, is a better locational proxy for where the activities took place that created the wealth. And some of those filings, as I understand from the briefs, change every year. That is, the office listed on the front changes, uh, changes annually. And if you don't know when the payment that goes with the particular stock was made, uh, how can you tell uh, what was their executive office at that, that year? The, the, uh, the statement made in the briefs, the statements made in the briefs are gross exaggerations. They encompass companies that do not pay dividends or interest. This court may take judicial notice that there are approximately 1,700 1,700 companies in corporate, uh, listed on the New York Stock Exchange, and the master found that there are less than 1% per year changing their principal executive office. And isn't there just a, a particular date of a particular year that property becomes eschewable? That is correct, and the master's proposed decree states that the principal executive office shall be deemed that set forth on the SEC filing within the 12 months preceding the cheat period. So you have to look merely to one principal executive office uh, per, per year. I was making the point that yeah, Delaware grossly exaggerated the frequency uh, of the change. Uh, in fact, with the advent of computer databases and software, it is just as easy today to implement a principal executive office rule as it is a state of incorporation test. Moreover, congressional guidance, again, in the money order statute, suggests the congressional preference, at least for money orders and traveler's checks, of principal place of business, which this is close to but not quite, rather than state of incorporation. Turning to disgorgement, all of the master's recommendations should apply to all of the property in this case. First, the master's conclusion that the relevant state is that of the issuer should apply fully because, as I said earlier, it is but an application of Texas versus New Jersey, not a change 
in any existing rule. Given that New York must disgorge, the question becomes which locational test should govern. We submit that the funds should be distributed based upon the new principal executive office test adopted in this case should the court adopt the master's recommendation. It would make little sense to adopt an equitably superior rule and then distribute the funds under a rejected rule. We submit that no reliance interests are implicated. If there are no further questions. Does the record show how much uh, total money is at issue? Uh, <coughs> record? Uh, if New York has to disgorge, is there any notion of what the size of the, of the uh, disgorgement will be? Yes, Justice White. The record shows that from 1985 through 1991, New York has cheated approximately $631 million. I would state that New York continued its cheating on the basis of its primary rule theory notwithstanding that the lawsuit was filed in 1988, and notwithstanding that in 1980, Payne Weber refused to pay over such funds to New York, and Payne Weber put New York on notice that its statute did not authorize the S cheat. So it's roughly, it's been a, at least $100 million a year. Since 1985, that is the average. I just cannot state if the numbers are higher or lower prior there, too. I might add that in Texas versus New Jersey, uh, the court awarded uh, disgorgement on a fully retroactive basis. Indeed, the court denied a motion filed after the decision by New Jersey to impose a two-year limitations period. How much money was involved in that case? Uh, I do not recall the number, but something like far less, dollars far less sums. Not quite as powerful a case not, for directive. But it is a rule of law at the moment, at least. We weren't really changing the prior decision in that case either. Uh, uh, we were laying down the rule for the first time. Do, do you happen to know, Mr. Nash, whether New York would have to d disgorge more under the uh, principal executive office test that you propose than it would under the uh, place of incorporation test? The court may take judicial notice of the fact, again, by running through the same databases that our firm ran through, uh, that approximately 21% uh, of the dividends paid by New York Stock Exchange companies, uh, I think it was 1990 or 1989, I forget, uh, were paid to, to New York companies that have principal executive offices therein, and under a state of incorporation rule, I believe uh, they were approximately 10 percent. So they probably do. They probably have to turn over less or disgorge less under a uh, under the rule that you propose, as opposed to the state of incorporation rule. That is correct. Mm -hmm. And there is also a practical limitation, uh, as the master found, and that is the records. Uh, uh, really do not exist once you get uh, much sometime in the mid in the mid 1970s to and, and yeah. <clears throat> how about uh, how about Delaware uh, in terms Del of comparing the two tests comparing the two tests Delaware has 
would receive uh, somewhat less than 1% of the money under a state of principal executive office rule and uh, somewhere between 40 and 50% of the money under a state of incorporation rule. Again, that is not on the record. That, I asked the court to take judicial notice uh, uh, of that from databases. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Nash. Mr. Lyons, you have five minutes remaining. In reply to the argument of New York that uh, the property here really could be shown to be primary rural property, I would urge not only the point that Justice Scalia made, that there are findings of the master that impede that uh, conclusion, but that it involves the proof of what I believe to be an impossibility, and that is that I, from my records, can uh, ascertain who owns a stock certificate which is essentially in bearer form that I gave to Mr. X on October 15, who holds that stock certificate on November 15, which is the record date for the, uh, for the dividend, because it is that person and those claiming under him who have the claim. And there is no way my records as the debtor, as the delivering broker, can show who owned that certificate, who had that certificate in his vault at any moment after the time I delivered it to the, to the first party. Addressing the arguments of the uh, interveners, uh, it is said that the issuer under state law is one of many debtors. Uh, we say that is not so. That Section 8207 of the Uniform Commercial Code says that the issuer is not a debtor once it has paid the holder of record, and that is what has happened here. The issuer is not a debtor uh, under state law. Uh, it is said to be an affirmative defense. Yes, it's an affirmative defense called payment. And payment is a very good affirmative uh, defense. It's the best affirmative defense on a note uh, that I can imagine. Uh, the location rule uh, as to whether we will admittedly change the rules from the state of incorporation to the state of principal executive office obviously implicates the hardcore rules of stare decisis. This is a rule laid down by the court in emphatic terms that it was setting a permanent rule. Justice Black says that over and over, and that was the treatment given it in the Western Union case. Congress can override this at any time within constitutional limits. Uh, this is like a statutory interpretation. It is subject to uh, the work of Congress under the Commerce Clause. Mr. Lyons, why is it Sorry, like, Congress. why Why would stare decisis here apply uh, as to statutory interpretation rather than the more relaxed form that applies to constitutional interpretation and to common law? Well, because this, in most constitutional interpretation, the, the uh, Congress can't change the rules. Uh, here Congress can because the, these are clearly in commerce these distributions, and also Congress has certain powers under Section 5 of the Due Process Clause, which is also functional. But in this area, clearly, you have distributions in commerce. They're the same basis as the, for the securities laws. Finally, it is said that there are changes in circumstance from 1965 to 1992, making the state of incorporation rule obsolete. Uh, there are none. The were databases back then that had the 
principal executive office. The 10-Q reports and the 10-K reports were the same, had the same cover uh, display, and there were databases that had the state of incorporation. Nothing has changed. Uh, the uh, choice is the same, and what we are having is an arbitrary rule, not originally supported by the parties who are now supporting it, uh, which the master decided to do. Uh, there were some questions about the amount of disgorgement in this case. Uh, let me say that the disgorgement from New York would be much greater under the rule contended for as the issuer as debtor, because under that rule, New York would lose the DTC monies, which are a very big piece of, uh, of this, and it would lose the money for the New York Incorporated Banks and the New York Incorporated Brokers. There are some of them. Uh, we pursued this case originally as a collection case, that this was something which was clearly covered uh, and which New York should not have cheated under the established rules. I, we do not view that as disgorgement. We view it as collection. What you have, I think, if the rules are changed to uh, redefine the issuer as debtor or to redefine the state of uh, principal executive office is a, not only a change uh, in the rules which will unsettle expectations and uh, bust the budgets of a number of states, uh, but an unwarranted departure from an area where certainty should be the rule. Thank, thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Lyons. The case is submitted.